case number 223272, Arizona et al. versus Joseph Biden et al. Oral argument not to exceed 15 minutes per side. Mr. Tenney for the appellate. Morning. Morning. May it please the court, Daniel Tenney for the United States. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Um, I'd like to start on the issue of standing. Uh, the state's brief makes clear that they're seeking an affirmative answer to the rhetorical question that this court posed in its stay opinion, which was whether any federal regulation through, of individuals through a policy statement that imposes peripheral costs on the state in the form of what they claim are increased fiscal burdens gives rise to a cognizable Article III injury that they can vindicate in federal court. The answer to that question is no as a general matter, and also there are several specific features of this case that make clear that the states lack standing here. I, I'm really interested in the standing stuff, but I did want to just right at the outset see what you had to say about 1252 F1 and whether you thought it made sense for us. I think the court, U.S. Supreme Court has at least one or two cases where they're looking at whether that applies in a situation like this. Um, I take it you, as you're consistent with your briefs, you think 1252 F1 does apply here, but I'm most interested in whether you think it's appropriate for us to wait to hear from the court of uh, this term uh, at that it, point. Um, as you say, the, we do expect to hear from the Supreme Court in the coming weeks on this issue. Um, and so if, if the, it, it would make sense to the extent that the court is inclined to reach that issue, it probably would make sense to wait for the court because the end of their term is approaching. Um, so, you know, we think there are a number of other issues, you know, grounds on which this case can be resolved. Uh, so the court could obviously reach those. The court's, I th if I remember correctly, the court's sort of tentative timeline for when it was going to resolve the, this case um, may have extended into July anyway. So it may be that the Supreme Court will have acted by the time this court's ready to rule anyway. But that, that's obviously up to the court how it wants to rule. But you're correct that there are two cases in the Supreme Court in which that issue has been presented. Obviously, we don't know for a fact that, you know, what, that yeah. the Supreme Court will resolve them in a way that will we'll control here. But you know, we, we do expect to hear more from the court on that. OK, so back to Article 3. <laughs> uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, as a general matter, the policy disputes between the states and the federal government, particularly concerning issues within the exclusive purview of the federal government have not been resolved through Article III courts. Um, and that long history should counsel caution in recognizing the broad theory of standing advanced here. And then there are particular features of this case, um, most notably that it arises in the enforcement context. And the Supreme Court has made clear in general in Linda RS and in the immigration context in particular in Chertan that there is no judicially cognizable interest in the enforcement of laws against another person. Um, and that is, the, that is the core of the injury that this, the, or the basis for the injury that the states are claiming here. Um, it, the, the other problem with this case is the speculative nature of the, even the harms that they claim will occur. As we've explained, um, th this policy statement does not necessarily will not necessarily have the effect um, that the states posit of increasing their need or their perceived need. How, how far does this argument go? I mean, imagine not exactly this case, but a statute that says, you know, do X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z are very clear. 
a guidance comes out that says we don't do X, Y, and Z, we disagree with X, Y, and Z, we think X, Y, and Z are unconstitutional and we're therefore not going to enforce them. And it has lots of monetary um, consequences for a given state. Even that, they wouldn't be able to challenge? Uh, I guess I, wanted to, I want to understand what the monetary consequences are. Um, I mean, in circumstances like Department of Commerce, where there was a direct impact on the states in terms of the money they would receive for the, from the federal government, that might be different. How about X, Y, and Z hypothetically say you have to have border rules, you have to have limits on people entering the south, well, let's make it the northern border. You have to have limits on entering the northern border, Ohio's in this case, um, and they just stop. They open the borders, totally open the borders. There's not even customs there. And so it, it obviously affects the border state. Um, theoretically, under the hypothetical, lots of people st stream in, start seeking you know, benefits under state law. They're not allowed to challenge that? I, mean, I would say I mean, that would bring this case closer to Linda R.S. itself, where in Linda R.S., the argument was that there was a policy of not enforcing uh, child support orders against um, parents of, of illegitimate children. And that there, there was a perfectly good argument that the, the mother of the child in that case had that there would be an effect on her if the, if the state started to enforce the, the father of her child might start paying her more money. And the, the, the case was not resolved on the ground that that, that was too speculative. Um, the case was resolved on the ground that she did not have a judicially cognizable interest in enforcement against another person, and and you know, and those consequences are even more direct than the hypothetical that you posit, because that was a circumstance in which she was anticipating that the the other person would pay money directly to her, as opposed to here, where the states are saying that they would exercise their own sovereign power differently in light of what the federal government has done. Now, I, I do want to make clear um, that in order to resolve this particular case, this court doesn't need to go nearly that far um, for, the, for the other reasons that we've explained, that, that the, you know, this isn't a case where the federal government has stopped enforcing the immigration laws. This isn't a case even where the federal government has slowed down enforcement in the particular areas that the states claim are the ones that they need enforcement. To the contrary. Because all the states, all that the guidance is doing is saying these are a variety of factors that the immigration officials should be considering in deciding who to detain and who to um, remove, correct? That's absolutely correct. And in, in addition, the, the factors themselves are quite consonant with the interests that the states are asserting here. Um, the, the factors involve concerns about national security, public safety, and border security. And so the argument here is that providing factors to be considered in a case-by-case -case way by individual immigration officers that encourage them to focus the use of the department's limited resources on, on persons who are going to threaten national security, public safety, and border safety, that that guidance will cause some injury to the state in the form of the state's feeling a need to exercise its own authority with respect to certain individuals more than it would have otherwise. It, it's not at all clear why that would be true on its own terms. As we've said, even if it were true on its own terms, um, that's not the sort of injury that, I mean, a state's going to be able to make a claim like that in all kinds of cases. They'll say there are too many people, 
um, which is taxing their resources or too few people so they won't get enough taxes. Um, they could make the same argument with regard to criminal enforcement and say if the federal government doesn't enforce its criminal laws in a more significant way. What, that, what's the injury? It's, I wonder if there's actually inju injury in either direction. What's the injury to you? I mean, given how you construe the guidance, um, what's, the, what's the injury to you of a, an injunction, even a nationwide injunction that says follow the statute. Your view is you're following the statute. You're just prioritizing. The guidance makes every, leaves the option for every officer to make an individualized determination for every single individual. How are you hurt? The guidance does have a purpose. It's, it, it doesn't have a, the sweeping effect that the states describe. But, I mean, the, the, gov the federal government, you know, can give guidance to its officers and say, here's how you know, here, here are, you know, from the leadership of the department, here's how we think the, um, how we think the discretion should be exercised and expect that officers will pay attention to that when they are exercising their discretion. And if you issue an injunction that says you can't follow that, um, it certainly leads to confusion as evidenced no, in the Bible. No, no, the, the injunction would say follow the statutes. Um, but it would also say, you know, there's individualized discretion and the permissibility of prioritization, because I think that's been true for every administration. You obviously prioritize if you have limited resources and there's not enough to completely honor, say, 1231. Uh, I, I guess I'm not totally understanding what the injunction would say. I mean, if the injunction says you can't pay any attention to this guidance, then that does lead to confusion and to officers not having the opportunity to to just conduct their operations in, in the normal course. If the injunction just says, follow the statute, that's sort of an ambiguous in, injunction in some sense and wouldn't, wouldn't, would also give rise to confusion and difficulty. It's also, I mean, it's a harm to say, you know, I mean, courts don't normally issue so-called follow the law injunctions that just say, you know, we understand you think you're already obeying this statute, but now we're ordering you to do so. And, and that, that is problematic. Your time is expiring. Could, you, could we go back to the state's claim that there will be these additional costs imposed as a result of the, the guidance? Um, the state's brief says that the criminal aliens are more prone to recidivate and that there are going to be all these increased costs, you know, for education, social services, uh, health care, things of that nature. And they say, well, the district court says these costs are inevitable. The briefing says that the record supports these costs as well as logic. I know your time has expired, but if you could just answer that question briefly. Uh, okay, no, Chief. take your time. <laughs> yeah. Answer it. And thank, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I mean, the, the first point, I think, is the one I made earlier, which is that the premise of that claim of injury is that the, the, the department will be exercising its enforcement um, authority less against criminal aliens, as, as the term that they've used, under the guidance than it would otherwise. Well, just a premise. I mean, there's nothing that you know of in the record that would support that premise. I mean, the, 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 the most salient thing in the record is the guidance itself, which says to prioritize pu public safety. And of course, the commission of crimes is, you know, the past commission of crimes is a core element of consideration when you're determining public safety. So the claim, I, I'm not totally sure I understand the claim, but I think the other side's claim is that 
notwithstanding that it says to focus on public safety, the guidance will somehow lead them to focus less on public safety. And you know, that, that isn't credible. Um, and, and so that is alone sufficient reason um, to reject that claim. The, the recidivism specifically was also considered. Officers are supposed to consider the likelihood of, of recidivism. It was discussed in the considerations memo that accompanied the guidance of how that consideration should be done and how you should make individualized determinations of the likelihood of recidivism. There's more to say on that, but, but I think that's probably sufficient. I, I, I have two more questions. One, one you know, so Mass for, Massachusetts versus EPA is their best argument in response to your standing argument. And I'm curious how you would try not just to distinguish the case the way lawyers distinguish cases, but you know, you say in your brief, and you started by saying, you know, this is not traditionally how the system works, that states can sue the federal government anytime the federal government does something that imposes the indirect costs on the states, right? I mean, so in, that has some appeal to me because I, it makes me wonder where this authority came from. Is it your view that Massachusetts versus EPA is, um, you know, let's say a land-based, territory-based exception to these normal rules, so it kind of fits in to the traditional way we would look at it? Or would you say, no, it actually seems to be a little outside the norm of how we would think about when the states could sue the federal government when, you know, it's not a situation where the feds are saying, we're preempting you or we're prohibiting you from doing something, which is a more classic way in which you would allow these kinds of lawsuits? Uh if I'm understanding the the options right, which I may not be, I, I would I would say more like the first one probably. The, the the claim in Massachusetts versus EPA was that the federal government would take was taking actions that would literally cause parts of the state of Massachusetts to fall into the ocean or disappear, and and to recognize that if that's the claim that the state itself has an interest in preserving its sovereign territory. Um, is, is quite different from what the states are claiming in this case. And because it's land, we can maybe relax redressability, causation, because obviously those are fairly speculative in that case. But you would just say, but it's land, and land might be the kind of thing historically that states could sue about. Uh, that's my understanding of what the Supreme Court was saying there. The Supreme Court talked about the states you know, exercising sovereign interest, and, and that was why it was willing to relax um, the 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 inquiry um, to say that you could relax the inquiry anytime a state claims that any action the federal government takes will affect the way the state exercises any of its sovereign powers would I mean would just turn turn this into you know turn it wide open and it's hard to I mean the states don't try to articulate a limiting principle for their theory um, and and certainly. Their theory certainly doesn't follow from Mass v. EPA itself, um, and there are, of course, prior cases like Massachusetts versus Mellon and Florida. Well, the thing versus that does follow from Mass versus EPA is it's very the traceability, redressability, causation, however you want to characterize it, is very speculative. I mean, that's what helps them when it comes to these costs and tracing them back to the government, right? I mean, that that strikes me as quite accurate when it comes to their argument. I, and the question is whether, well, that's only because it was land. And land is about as core a sovereign point as you get, and therefore that's why we would have a solicitude relaxation. And but that doesn't apply here, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at, and, and why. <laughs> I, I I agree with that point that 
that land the fact that it was land and it was a core sovereign function has to play into that analysis in terms of the speculativeness um, I, another point to add there is that at least in that case the direction was clear it was clear you know they were saying if you regulate greenhouse gases then it will reduce the effects that climate change will have on our coastline he, here they're saying they're not they're not it's not only speculative but they're they're saying we anticipate that this guidance will actually have the opposite effect from what you're telling your officers to do and what is intended and you know, so i our primary submission is that you should not be you know relaxing the redressability inquiry in this case but even if you were it would take it a good step further to take it all the way to saying we're going to assume that this guidance will do the opposite of what it says. And then just my last question, just on the, so this is the finality point. And when you, you know, just an intuition when it comes to this particular part of the case is well, gee, I mean, they, whatever you want to call the guidance, they've been working on it for a while. It seems to be this administration's guidance. I mean, it, it, at least to the extent the word finality is important, it's hard to believe it's not final for this first four years of this administration. It, it makes you start to think guidances just aren't reviewable. I and mean, maybe that's maybe that is the punchline. Generally speaking, guidance isn't reviewable, whether you have, it's final, preliminary, you name it. But how do I think about that intuition? Uh, well, the, the question of whether they've considered it and if it's the consummation of their decision-making process is the first of two elements of the inquiry. So there's no dispute that that's satisfied here. We're really talking about the second, which is rights and obligations. And the, if the point is that guidance usually won't affect legal rights and obligations, that's, never that's correct. I, I, I don't know that that means that guidance is never reviewable. There are circumstances... Um, you know, and some of the cases lay this out far afield from what we have here. But if there's a guidance that, in effect, requires people to do something because they say, from now on, we're going to construe the statute this way, and our enforcement, you know, we're going to take enforcement against people who don't do the following thing, and you know, lay it out. And there are some cases like that where basically there's an expectation that regulated entities will alter their primary conduct based on the guidance. Um, then that would be the circumstance in which a guide, something that's termed a guidance document might be final agency action. That, I mean, that's worlds apart from here. Your key answer to me is don't be troubled by the fact that guidances usually aren't reviewable. Um, that's right. The, because the, the, the inquiry as set out by the Supreme Court is whether something affects legal rights and obligations. And the fact that the, the word final agency action, as you say, the fact that it's a consummation of the agency's decision-making process is part of it, but that's only one of the two steps of the inquiry. And so the fact that you think that doesn't mean that it's problematic that there will be lots of things that are the consummation of the decision-making process that are not final agency action. Um, okay, I think, uh, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll get your rebuttal, Mr. Flowers. General Flowers, we'll hear from you. Morning. Morning. Thank you, Chief Judge Sutton, and may it please the court. I really think this case turns on, at least 90% of it turns on two issues, Judge Moore's question about whether the policy is binding and Judge Cole's question about the injuries. So I'll try to address those in order, beginning uh, with, with Judge Moore. 
I want to first discuss the policy, DHS's own processes, and I can point you to record evidence. This, contrary to what DHS is saying now, is a binding policy that, that binds ICE officers in the exercise of their discretion. So with the policy, when the Secretary issued it, he said that DHS would, for the first time ever, abandon a categorical approach to enforcement and instead require, that's his word, an assessment of individual facts and circumstances in each case. Sure enough, the policy forbids ICE officers from relying on statutory eligibility alone, and it requires, it says that they, quote, must evaluate the individual and totality of the facts and circumstances in every case. That means that when, when that totality of the circumstances test is impossible or when it can't support removal, removal is uh, prohibited. Their processes confirm this. Both the policy and the considerations memo call for training and data collection aimed at ensuring, I'll quote again from the considerations memo, aimed at ensuring that discretion is being exercised consistent with the guidelines. And DHS set up a process whereby aliens can argue that a particular enforcement action does not meet DHS's priorities for enforcement. None of that makes any sense they clearly, if the... They clearly said in the policy that it did not provide for any rights that anyone could assert. And courts, have repeat, and courts have repeatedly said that that sort of language uh, doesn't, it isn't dispositive, especially because we're not talking about rights. I'm talking here about, forget whether it gives the alien any rights. Does it bind the ICE officers in the exercise of their actions? And if there are, if there are, as he says, no actions that are inconsistent with the guidelines, why do they have a process where aliens can argue that their enforcement action does not meet DHS's priorities? That confirms there are some enforcement actions that don't meet the priorities. We have record evidence, too. Thomas Homan, former acting director of ICE, in a declaration at document 4-18, says that the policy has been and will be understood by ICE officers as binding, and he gives an example of a circumstance where arrest and removal is prohibited. Many, many uh, times an officer will come across an alien in the field, and will, they'll know that they're statutorily eligible for arrest, but they won't know anything else about the person. In that circumstance, you can't do the totality of the circumstances analysis, and so you can't, under the guidelines, perform the arrest. We also have emails. This is document 39-1, dropping detainer requests on the ground that they're inconsistent with the guidelines. So I know DHS has done a laudable job trying to say that this is just sort of a recommendation or advice. It is binding on the agents. Judge Cole, to your question about numbers, I frankly don't understand <clears throat> how they can stand here and say. I just want to pause on this binding on the agents. I mean, that's not normally how we do, this is just not normally how this works. Uh, the federal government says to its agents, it's, here's our enforcement priorities. In fact, they say must, 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 but they're not actually regulating individuals. They're not actually directly regulating states. You know, pretend there's a world without Massachusetts versus EPA. I, I think most people would have laughed at the idea that the states can come in and challenge that, we'll call it binding guidance on the theory it's not directly regulating them. On the theory, it's having all these consequences. I think we would have just said Lujan would never allow that. And you know, and maybe the answer is Massachusetts versus EPA, but I, I do think historically it's a very strange concept that states can come in and do this. And I frankly don't think it's been wonderful for the courts. Well, uh, that may be right, but I understand there's probably some buyer's remorse on Mass v. EPA in the census case in DACA. But the reality is we, it would be well, even worse. The census worse. case is different. Don't, don't go too quickly there because the census case, that's money they get. That's directly money they get. And that's, that strikes me as different. Um, I, 
I actually think that the, Go ahead. the causal chain here is, is less tangential. There you had speculation that aliens would refuse to fill out the census and that that would decrease New York's populations enough that they would lose federal funding. Here you have a circumstance where we know, and I'll get to the data in a minute, enforcement is down, so we will have more aliens within our borders and thus we'll be forced by federal law to spend more money. It's less speculative, if anything. But in any event, we're bound by those cases. And as bad as they might be for the judiciary, it would be worse for standing to ebb and flow depending on the party of the president in power. With respect to final agency action, you're right. You generally cannot argue uh, that you know advice to an officer is itself a final agency action. But Hawk says that when the um, agency's action binds officials, limits their discretion in a way that will create, say, a safe harbor for, for, for regulated entities, that is a final agency action. Here you have a safe harbor because for all the reasons I discussed, aliens who aren't eligible for removal under the guidance won't be removed. There are aliens who are not eligible. So this brings me to Judge Cole's question about uh, the, the evidence on standing. They say there's no record evidence. That is just uh, incredibly false. We submitted a declaration or rather testimony from a prior case, a document 4-11, in which an, an ICE official says that the only thing causing a drop in removals and arrests in Phoenix was the interim guidance. The interim guidance is similar to the permanent guidance. So let's go through the numbers. It is undisputed, they don't dispute our evidence, and in fact it's from their data, that removals of serious criminal aliens are down. If you look at the administrative record, page 2160-65, to 65, they compare uh, removals of criminal aliens between January and March of 2021 uh, 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 and 2020, right? So the difference between the two policies. And here are the categories, DHS's categories of aliens in which removal is down. Homicide, sexual assault, weapons offenses, assault, burglary, sex crimes, dangerous drugs, kidnapping, and robbery. Now perhaps they have a theory on how having fewer removals of individuals convicted of those crimes benefits the states, but I haven't heard it yet. We go to the numbers on arrests and removals. Uh, they try to make a comparison to 2020. They repeatedly do that. It's not a good comparison because the number of individuals subject to Title VIII crossing the border was dramatically lower. So of course you had fewer border check-ins. Let's go to 2019 where the numbers are comparable. They're still smaller in 2019. So if anything, the arrests uh, at the border and the interior should be smaller, but that's not what you find. If you compare October to April, this is the data they cite in their reply brief at page five. Uh, 1,009, I'm sorry, 197,000 total arrests in that period in 2022, to 327,000 in 2019. At the border, despite there being lower numbers in 2019, you had uh, 246,000 arrests in 2019 and 167,000 in 2022. Removals of serious criminal aliens on the, the FOIA data that's revealed in the CIS study we cite. And between January and July of each year, 17,500 serious criminal aliens removed in 2019, 6,000 in 2021. So we have ample data showing that, that removals and arrests have plummeted under the interim guidance, which is similar to the current guidance. Let's just say you're, you're right about all that. I'm still trying to figure out what a victory for you looks like. Um, you, know, you want an injunction that says the guidance is incompatible with the statute in a couple ways. Presumably the injunction would say stop following this, these parts of the guidance, follow the statutes instead. But then we run into this problem that I think everyone agrees that no administration for decades has had the resources to fully comply. And so then I, I find myself saying, okay, this sounds like it's heading towards a, a consent decree. We'll hire an independent monitor. 
and we'll have the judges kind of figuring out exactly how this is being done. You know, it reminds me of prison consent decrees that, you know, no one looks back on those and says, boy, that was just one of the great eras of federal court jurisprudence. It was really beautiful. They thought it was really intrusive, and it was the judiciary becoming enforcement, you know, separation of powers problems in the other direction. Why isn't that... I don't understand why that's not the bottom of the, the road we're, we're heading on if we go this route. So what you suggested would be improper, but it's not what we're requesting. All that we want is, is in a, what the district court did, enjoying the policy so that agents return, have all the discretion that, that the law requires that they exercise to make arrests. Now, they may not exercise it in every case, but we know from those 2019 numbers I just read that when they have more discretion, when they're not bound by this policy, they're making substantially more arrests. I've got to tell you, I'm so dubious about relying on these numbers. I mean, we have COVID. We have the effect of stopping people at the border. I mean, it's, I mean I'm happy to spend hours looking at this stuff, but yeah. I'm very dubious that something over the last two years is going to have a eureka moment as to what to do here. Well, we, have, we also have ICE officers saying that's what caused to the difference. follow up on that, though, the guidance says, look for the most serious criminals. Mm -hmm. And what you want is to eliminate that and say, look for all criminals. So an, an agent then would be prioritizing, if they have to prioritize because of the limited number of beds, for instance, they would, they would say, okay, here's somebody who's violated a crosswalk rule. It's a criminal offense in this particular state. They're a criminal, we must, arrest them, we must detain them, we must remove them. And it seems to me that it's really contradictory to the interests of the states, which would seem to be to focus on national security people, people who are involved with violent crime, um, which is what this guidance is trying to do, to, to focus on the worst of the worst. Um, so we have no objection to a true prioritization program where you would prioritize those individuals. It doesn't seem like they're being prioritized even under this guidance, but even if we put that aside, um, the, the problem here is that even if, as the example that we give in our, our brief, and I think they uh, agree to, even if you have ample resources to remove the, the terrorist, the murderer, the person who's clearly prioritized, even if you can remove them and add one other person, no cost, no strained resources, but you can't conduct the totality of the circumstances test for that individual or they don't meet it for whatever reason, you cannot perform the removal. That's the problem. And with respect to COVID, we chose a, a pre-COVID year. Uh, one, one year. Yeah. What? One year. They can point to any other year they'd like if they want. They pick, pick another pre-COVID year. I can also point you to something else in the record. We have uh, the Thomas Holman again uh, says, and this is at, um, uh, I'll, I'll find the citation in a minute. Uh, for, uh, document 4-18, they're removing fewer people than in 2012, despite having more resources and more funding. We also have the fact that they're actively working, apparently, to decrease their bed space. You see that the Freyhat case, where they're apparently trying to settle a case that they won in October. You have the fact that they're asking for few, less money. They're cutting, um, they're ending contracts to people who provide the bed space. So we... When you look at the totality of the circumstances here, the fact that the reply brief says nothing about pretext, despite the fact uh, that, that we briefed it substantially, I don't think it's reasonable for the court to think that this is actually a genuine attempt to improve immigration enforcement. And so we know that if this isn't there and the, and the officers have a freer hand, they will resume um, those, those removals. The thing about the data is you, know, you can make the argument it supports their key theory. 
their key theory is elections matter, and whoever the President of the United States is is going to have a very big impact on immigration policy, particularly if Congress is not going to enter the fray. And, you know, we live in a world where people respond to, they have, a, they have their own set of incentives as to what the government does when it enforces criminal laws or immigration laws. And I don't know, I, I got to say that has resonates with me, particularly when I, it's very unclear to me exactly what the courts would be doing here. I mean, it resonates with me to some extent as well, but it would have also resonated when the president declined to regulate emissions and mass VEPA when they repealed DACA in that case, and the courts got involved in those. There was even standing to, to challenge the travel ban on behalf of states. So I, I completely understand the aversion to that, but those are the cases, that, that's the law right now. Uh, and I would add that the only thing the states can do at this point, the only way they can protect themselves is to bring APA challenges. Uh, they don't have another option. They can't even go to Congress because Congress has passed the laws and administration after administration fails to do it. So there's really not... Well, what about 1252 F1? I mean, that, you know, that, 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 that makes some sense to me. The idea, you know, we can let circuit splits develop as to the meaning of these laws and how they work, constitutional challenges or not, and, but we're going to say as to actually forcing someone to do something, we're going to let the U.S. Supreme Court do that. Sure. So I do agree with my friend that it makes sense to wait and see. The Supreme Court has two separate cases that will almost certainly address uh, that issue. So I, I do think it, it makes sense to wait, but I can address it for you anyway. Sure. Um, it's true it says jurisdiction, but it's jurisdiction with respect to relief. Uh, that's not typically understood as subject matter jurisdiction, and they long ago waived this because they never raised Well, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. Um, a forfeiture in this setting was such a significant case. i got to say, speaking only for me, I... I I, I don't know, it seems like a funny thing to say, yeah, we'll, we'll decide this on the wrong ground when there's a really important statute there. So I don't really care whether it's jurisdictional. I, I probably think you're right. It's not subject matter jurisdiction for what it's worth. Sure. But I'm hesitant to say it would be a forfeiture also. And so in that case, we're not seeking to enjoin or restrain the INA. We're seeking to enjoin a policy that, if we're right, is contrary to the INA. They're still free to to enforce it as, exactly as it's, as it's stated. The point of that statute, when you look at it in context, is to stop courts from reviewing challenges to the enforcement of the statutes themselves, not to the refusal to enforce the statutes. It's which, not limited to constitutional challenges. I don't believe that it is, no. Um, with respect to your question on mass VPA, I see my time is running short here, and does it limited to land? I think this court's precedent rules that out. Kentucky v. Biden uh, made clear that states can sue to defend their sovereign interests. And in that case, they said that would include, for example, the federal contractor vaccine mandate, the effect that that would have on our economies. So I think that limitation on mass VPA is ruled out. But, but I mean, if it's just economic points, I mean, I don't understand why a state doesn't have authority to challenge the federal government over its prosecution of a war. That, that imposes huge costs on the citizens in the states, right? I mean, so I, it just can't be but I think economics. Reason, I, I can't believe that. So if I could quick, yeah. it, oh, no. I, I think mass VPA, you need the procedural right and you need the, the harm. I think the, the APA would not challenge, for example, the prosecute. The APA would not allow a challenge for the prosecution of a war. I think that's the difference. We have the APA here that is allowing us to bring the suit, and that was a key factor in uh, mass VPA as well. And of course, for many of these uh, challenges, we, we posit the far out ones like a war uh, or, say, a tax law. The, the connection between the policy and the actual injuries being suffered, the burden on the fisc, will be pretty speculative and hard to show uh, any causation for. Here, though, again, I, I can't 
drop uh, end without saying this a document uh, 4-11 you have an ice official saying the thing that caused the drop in arrest and removals is the interim guidance and the permanent guidance pretty much carries forward what that one was accomplishing happy to take any other questions if there are none i ask that you affirm no uh, thank you thank you appreciate your argument um you're from mr tenney you've got your rebuttal Thank you, Your Honor. I, I really just have one point, and I'm also happy to entertain any questions the court has. I, I just want to make clear what the status quo ante here is here. Um, I mean, they say this rejects the categorical approach. The categorical approach was not arrest everybody who's subject to 1226C1 and, you know, and everybody who's subject to 1231A. That's completely clear based on the concessions about the resources. It's stated explicitly in the considerations memo. No administration has ever done that. The categorical approach they were talking about was instead of doing a case-by-case -case analysis, previous guidances had said, here are the categories. People have committed these particular crimes. People who you know, have these particular characteristics, those are the priorities, as opposed to saying, here are some factors to consider, and we're going to um, and, and but you know consider the totality of the circumstances i'm not sure how dramatic a difference that is but the suggestion that they got rid of the categorical approach and that's the reason that we're not enforcing you know 1226 everyone who against everyone who's subject to 1226 c1 that's that's just clearly not what's going on here and similarly with respect to the numbers you know we can go back and forth on the statistics um there's so many confounding variables, it's hard to sort of say. I mean, they seem to be interchanging interim guidance and permanent guidance and to say that there's all these other things that the department is doing other than this guidance. But just on that point, is it's not fair to look at the numbers for the interim and the final? Aren't they pretty similar? Um, I, they're, they're similar in some ways. They're different in some what's ways. The key, what's the key variable on that point, just to make sure we're, I'm getting it? Um, I'm, I mean, the... I mean, I mean, so in, in January, there was a pause in removals, and then that was enjoined. That obviously is no longer here. Um, then there were requirements for supervisor approval to go after certain people. I'm not sure these would have affected the numbers. My only point is, is that it, even if you put aside the interim versus the final, there is so much going on in the world here um, to say, you know, we can pick out some numbers and, you know, and attribute every change that we perceive to those to, to the guidance is extraordinary. And, and the related point I would make is that, you know, there is, um, I mean, they're, they're pointing to interior removals as opposed to the border, and there are all these things, and they say there's a drop. I mean, I, what, you, what you haven't seen is, um, you know, there's declarations in the record about how much of the de detention capacity is full. It's still most of it. It fluctuates some, um, but but we know that they weren't going after everyone before, and and so it's it's just to say and to say that this guidance document has caused a plummeting caseload is just not that just isn't supported by the record, and you can argue at the margins about exactly how much changed in which year, and we, you know, to say you, you can't consider fiscal 2020 even before the pandemic started, and you have to consider 19, you know, we would have take issue with that, the fact that they're ignoring the Title 42 order that's deposing, that's expelling people at the border, we would take issue with that, but I, I fundamentally don't think this case comes down to statistics, it comes down to what the guidance actually says. 
Well, just one other question. No reason you should know this, but um, this Texas case that's at the court is pending that has the 1252-1 issue in it. Is there anything else in that case that you think will affect the debate we're having today? I just don't know the case probably as well as you do, but if you don't know the answer, that's fine. Um, I, I mean, there is a discussion in that. I mean, one of the there's a number of arguments in that case. One of them does relate to the mandatory nature of certain things that DHS must have might have to do. It's in a different context. It's 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 for people who are, um, who are, who are subject to admission at the border as opposed to people who are already here, um, and so. I, I don't. Words, there's a Castle Rock. There, there's argument. discussion of Castle Rock in that case. I don't want to tell you that it's the same as what's going on well, in I this can, case. I can imagine why you would say that. Um, um, but but I, but I also don't want to tell you that it's completely different, and there's no chance the Supreme Court will say anything that bears on this case because I don't think that's accurate either. I appreciate that. Um, any other? Okay. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Mr. Tenney. Thank you, General Flowers. Uh, we really appreciate your briefs for doing them all so quickly. We're really grateful, and uh, we'll do our best to decide this within roughly three months, the three months we set back then, so uh, the next few weeks. Thank you very much. The case will be submitted, and the clerk uh, may adjourn court.